0: Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson read by Adrian Pretzelus chapter 9 powder and arms the hispaniola lay some way out and we went under the figure-heads and around the sterns of many other ships, and their cables sometimes grated beneath our keel, and sometimes swung above us. At last, however, we swung alongside, and were met and saluted as we stepped aboard by the mate, Mr. Arrow, a brown old sailor, with earrings in his ears, and a squint. He and the squire were very thick and friendly, but I soon observed that things were not the same between Mr. Trelawney and the captain. This last was a sharp-looking man, who seemed angry with everything on board, and was soon to tell us why, for we had hardly got down into the cabin when a sailor followed us. "'Captain Smollett, sir, axing to speak with you,' said he. "'I am always at the captain's orders. Show him in,' said the squire. The captain, who was close behind his messenger, entered at once, and shut the door behind him. "'Well, Captain Smollett, what have you to say?' all well i hope all shipshape and seaworthy well sir said the captain better speak plain i believe at the risk of offence i don't like this cruise i don't like the men and i don't like my officer that's short and sweet perhaps sir you don't like the ship inquired the squire very angry as i could see i can't speak to that sir not having seen her tried said the captain she seems a clever craft more i can't say possibly sir you may not like your employer either said the squire but here dr livesey cut in stay a bit said he stay a bit no use of such questions as that but to produce ill feeling the captain has said too much or he has said too little "'and I'm bound to say that I require an explanation of his words. "'You don't, you say, like this cruise. Now why?' "'I was engaged, sir, on what we call sealed orders, "'to sail this ship for that gentleman where he should bid me,' said the captain. "'So far, so good. But now I find that every man before the mast knows more than I do.' "'I don't call that fair, now, do you?' "'Now,' said Dr. Livesey, "'I don't.' "'Next,' said the captain, "'I learn that we are going after treasure. "'Hear it from my own hands, mind you. "'Now treasure is ticklish work. "'I don't like treasure voyages on any account, "'and I don't like them above all "'when they are secret and when—' "'begging your pardon, Mr. Trelawney— "'The secret has been told to the parrot.' "'Silver's parrot?' asked the squire. "'It's a way of speaking,' said the captain. "'Blabbed, I mean. "'It's my belief neither of you gentlemen know what you are about, "'but I'll tell you my way of it, life or death, and a close run.' "'That is all clear, and I dare say true enough,' replied Dr. Livesey. "'We take the risk.' "'But we are not so ignorant as you believe us. "'Next you say you don't like the crew. "'Are they not good seamen?' "'I don't like them, sir,' returned Captain Smollett, "'and I think I should have had the choosing of my own hands. "'If you go to that—' "'Perhaps you should,' replied the doctor. "'My friend should, perhaps, have taken you along with him. "'But the slight, if there be one, was unintentional.' "'And you don't like Mr Arrow?' "'I don't, sir. "'I believe he's a good seaman, "'but he's too free with the crew to be a good officer. "'A mate should keep himself to himself, "'shouldn't drink with the men before the mast.' "'Do you mean he drinks?' cried the squire. "'No, sir,' replied the captain, "'only that he's too familiar. "'Well, now, and the short and the long of it, captain—' asked the doctor. Tell us what you want. Well, gentlemen, are you determined to go on this cruise? Like iron, answered the squire. Very good, said the captain. Then, as you've heard me very patiently, saying things that I could not prove, hear me a few words more. They are putting the powder and arms in the forehold. Now— you have a good place under the cabin why not put them there first point then you are bringing four of your own people with you and they tell me some of them are to be berthed forward why not give them the berths here besides the cabin second point any more asked mr trelawney one more said the captain "'There's been too much blabbing already.' "'Far too much,' agreed the doctor. "'I'll tell you what I have heard myself,' continued Captain Smollett. "'That you have a map of an island, "'that there's crosses on the map to show where treasure is, "'and that the island lies.' "'And then he named the latitude and longitude exactly.' "'I never told that,' cried the squire, "'to a soul.' the hands know it sir returned the captain livesey that must have been your hawkins cried the squire it doesn't much matter who it was replied the doctor and i could see that neither he nor the captain paid much regard to mr trelawney's protestations neither did i to be sure he was so loose a talker yet in this case i believe he was really right and that nobody had told the situation of the island well gentlemen continued the captain i don't know who has this map but i make it a point it shall be kept secret even from me and mr arrow otherwise i would ask you to let me resign i see said the doctor "'You wish us to keep this matter dark, and to make a garrison of the stern part of the ship, manned with my friend's own people, and provided with all the arms and powder on board. In other words, you fear a mutiny.' "'Sir,' said Captain Smollett, with no intention to take offence, "'I deny your right to put words into my mouth.' no captain sir would be justified in going to sea at all if he had ground enough to say that as for mr arrow i believe him thoroughly honest some of the men are the same all may be for what i know but i am responsible for the ship's safety and the life of every man jack aboard of her i see things going as i think not quite right, and I ask you to take certain precautions, or let me resign my berth, and that's all. Captain Smollett, began the doctor with a smile. Did you ever hear the fable of the mountain and the mouse? You'll excuse me, I dare say, but you remind me of that fable. When you came in here, I'll stake my wig. You meant more than this. Doctor! said the captain, "'you are smart. When I came in here, I meant to get discharged. I had no thought that Mr. Trelawney would hear a word.' "'No more I would,' cried the squire. "'Had Livesey not been here, I should have seen you to the deuce. As it is, I have heard you. I will do as you desire, but I think the worst of you.' "'That's as you please, sir.' said the captain. "'You'll find I do my duty.' And with that he took his leave. Trelawney," said the doctor. "'Contrary to all my notions, I believe you have managed to get two honest men on board with you— that man and John Silver.' "'Silver, if you like,' cried the squire. But as for that intolerable humbug, I declare I think his conduct unmanly, unsailorly, and downright un-English. Well, said the doctor, we shall see. When we came on deck, the men had begun already to take out the arms and powder, yo hoing at their work, while the captain and Mr. Arrow stood by superintending. The new arrangement was quite to my liking. The whole schooner had been overhauled six berths had been made astern out of what had been the after part of the main hold and this set of cabins was only joined to the galley and forecastle by a sparred passage on the port side it had been originally meant that the captain mr arrow hunter joyce the doctor and the squire were to occupy these six berths now red ruth and i were to get two of them and mr arrow and the captain were to sleep on deck in the companion which had been enlarged on either side till you might almost have called it a roundhouse very low it was still of course but there was room to swing two hammocks and even the mate seemed pleased with the arrangement even he perhaps had been doubtful as to the crew but that is only guess for as you shall hear we had not long the benefit of his opinion we were all hard at work changing the powder and the berths when the last man or two and long john along with them came off in a shore-boat the cook came up the side like a monkey for cleverness and as soon as he saw what was doing so ho mates said he what's this we're a changing the powder jack answers one why by the powers cried long john if we do we'll miss the morning tide "'My orders,' said the captain, shortly. "'You may go below, my man. Hands will want supper.' ay, sir,' answered the cook, and, touching his forelock, he disappeared at once in the direction of his galley. "'That's a good man, Captain,' said the doctor. "'Very likely, sir,' replied Captain Smollett. "'Easy with that, men, easy!' He ran on to the fellows who were shifting the powder, and then, suddenly observing me examining the swivel we carried amidships a long brass nine— "'Hear you, ship's boy,' he cried, "'Out o' that! Off with you to the cook, and get some work!' And then, as I was hurrying off, I heard him say, quite loudly, to the doctor, "'I'll have no favourites on my ship!' I assure you I was quite of the squire's way of thinking, and hated the captain deeply." End of Chapter Nine. Chapter Ten: The Voyage. All that night we were in a great bustle, getting things stowed in their place, and boatfuls of the squire's friends, Mister Blandley and the like, coming off to wish him a good voyage and a safe return. We never had a night at the Admiral Bembo when I had half the work, and I was dog tired when, a little before dawn, the bosun sounded his pipe and the crew began to man the capstan bars. I might have been twice as weary, yet I would not have left the deck, All oh, was so new and interesting to me—the brief commands, the shrill notes of the whistle, the men bustling to their places in the glimmer of the ship's lanterns. "'Now, barbecue, tip us a stave!' cried one voice. "'The old one!' cried another. Oy, aye mates!' said Long John, who was standing by with his crutch under his arm and at once broke out in the air and words i knew so well fifteen men on a dead man's chest and then the whole crew bore chorus yo ho ho and a bottle of rum and at the third ho drove the bars before them with a will even at that exciting moment it carried me back to the old admiral bembo in a second and i seemed to hear the voice of the captain piping in the chorus But soon the anchor was short up, soon it was hanging dripping at the bows, soon the sails began to draw, and the land and shipping to flit by on either side, and before I could lie down to snatch an hour of slumber, the Hispaniola began her voyage to the Isle of Treasure. I am not going to relate the voyage in detail. It was fairly prosperous. The ship proved to be a good ship, and the crew were capable seamen, and the captain thoroughly understood his business but before we came the length of treasure island two or three things had happened which require to be known mr arrow first of all turned out even worse than the captain had feared he had no command among the men and people did what they pleased with him but that was by no means the worst of it for after a day or two at sea he began to appear on deck with hazy eye red cheeks stuttering tongue and other marks of drunkenness time after time he was ordered below in disgrace. Sometimes he fell and cut himself, sometimes he lay all day long in his little bunk at one side of the companion. Sometimes for a day or two he would be almost sober and attend to his work at least passably. In the meantime we could never make out where he got the drink. That was the ship's mystery. Watch him as we pleased—we could do nothing to solve it, and when we asked him to his face, he would only laugh if he were drunk, and if he were sober, deny solemnly that he ever tasted anything but water. He was not only useless as an officer, and a bad influence among the men, but it was plain that at this rate he must soon kill himself outright, so nobody was much surprised, nor very sorry, when, one dark night, with a head sea, he disappeared entirely, and was seen no more. Overboard, said the captain. "'Well, gentlemen, that saves the trouble of putting him in irons.' And there we were without a mate, and it was necessary, of course, to advance one of the men. The bosun, Job Anderson, was the likeliest man aboard, and though he kept his old title, he served in a way as mate. Mr. Trelawney had followed the sea, and his knowledge made him very useful, for often he took a watch himself in easy weather, and the coxswain, Israel Hands, was a careful, wily, old, experienced seaman, who could be trusted at a pinch with almost anything. He was a great confidant of Long John Silver, and so the mention of his name leads me on to speak of our ship's cook, Barbecue, as the men called him. Aboard ship he carried his crutch by a lanyard around his neck, to have both hands as free as possible. It was something to see him wedge the foot of the crutch against a bulkhead, and, propped against it, yielding to every movement of the ship, get on with his cooking like someone safe ashore. Still more strange was it to see him, in the heaviest of weather, cross the deck. He had a line or two rigged up to help him across the widest spaces. Long John's earrings, they were called and he would hand himself from one place to another, now using the crutch, now trailing it alongside by the lanyard, as quickly as another man could walk. Yet some of the men who had sailed with him before expressed their pity to see him so reduced. "'He's no common man, barbecue,' said the coxswain to me. "'He had a good schooling in his young days, and can speak like a book when he's so minded, and brave, A lions nothing alongside of Long John.' I've seen him grapple four, and knock their heads together—him unarmed!" All the crew respected, and even obeyed him. He had a way of talking to each, and doing everybody some particular service. To me he was unweariedly kind, and always glad to see me in the galley, which he kept as clean as a new pin, the dishes hanging up burnished, and his parrot in a cage in the corner. "'Come away, young Hawkins!' he would say,—'Come and have a yarn with John.' "'Nobody more welcome than yourself, my son. Sit you down and hear the news. Here's Cap'n Flint. I calls my parrot Cap'n Flint, after the famous buccaneer. Here's Cap'n Flint, predicting success to our voyage, wasn't you, Cap'n?' And the parrot would say, with great rapidity,—'Pieces of eight, pieces of eight, pieces of eight till you wondered that it was not out of breath, or till John threw his handkerchief over the cage. "'Now that bird,' he would say, "'is maybe two hundred years old, Hawkins. They live for ever, mostly, and if anybody see more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. She sailed with England, the great Captain England, the pirate.' She's been at Madagascar, and at Malabar, and Suriname, and Providence, and Portobello. She was at the fishing-up of the wrecked plate-ships. It's there she learned pieces of eight. And little wonder, three hundred and fifty thousand off Americans. She was at the boarding of the Viceroy of the Indies, out of Goa she was. And to look at her, you would think she was a bobby. "'But you smelt powder, didn't you, Cap'n? "'Stand by to go about,' the parrot would scream. "'Ah, she's handsome craft, she is,' the cook would say, and give her sugar from his pocket. And then the bird would peck at the bars and swear straight on, passing belief for wickedness. "'There,' John would add, "'you can't pitch and not be mucked, lad.' Here's the poor old innocent bird of mine swearin' blue fire, and none the wiser you may late of that. She would swear the same, in a manner of speaking, before the chaplain." And John would touch his forelock with a solemn way he had that made me think he was the best of men. In the meantime the squire and Captain Smollett were still on pretty distant terms with one another. The squire made no bones about the matter. He despised the captain. The captain, on his part, never spoke but when he was spoken to, and then sharp and short and dry, and not a word wasted. He owned, when driven into a corner, that he seemed to have been wrong about the crew, that some of them were as brisk as he wanted to see, and all had behaved fairly well. As for the ship, he had taken a downright fancy to her. "'She'll lie a point nearer the wind than a man has the right to expect of his own married wife, sir. But—' he would add. All I say is, we're not home again, and I don't like the cruise. The squire at this would turn away and march up and down the deck, chin in air. A trifle more of that man, he would say, and I should explode. We had some heavy weather, which only proved the qualities of the Hispaniola. Every man on board seemed well content, and he must have been hard to please, if they had been otherwise, for it is my belief that there was never a ship's company so spoiled since Noah put to sea. Double grog was going at the least excuse. There was duff on odd days, as, for instance, if the squire heard it was any man's birthday, and all was a barrel of apples standing broached in the waist for any one to help himself that had a fancy. "'Never knew good to come of it yet,' the captain said to Dr. Livesey. "'Spoil folks' hands, make devils. That's my belief. But good did come of the apple-barrel, as you shall hear. For if it had not been for that, we should have had no note of warning, and might all have perished by the hand of treachery. This is how it came about. We had run up the trades to get wind of the island we were after. I am not allowed to be more plain, and now we were running down for it with a bright look-out day and night. It was about the last day of our outward voyage, by the last computation. Some time that night, or latest before noon of the morrow, we should sight the treasure island. We were heading south-west, and had a steady breeze abeam and a quiet sea. The Hispaniola rolled steadily, dipping her bowsprit now and then with a whiff of spray. All was drawing low and aloft. Every one was in the bravest spirits, because we were now so near an end of the first part of our adventure. Now, just after sundown, when all my work was over, and I was on my way to my berth, it occurred to me that I should like an apple. I ran on deck. The watch was all forward, looking out for the island. The man at the helm was watching the luff of the sail, and whistling away gently to himself— and that was the only sound, excepting the swish of the sea against the bows and around the sides of the ship. In I got bodily into the apple-barrel, and found there was scarce an apple left, but sitting down there in the dark, what with the sound of the waters and the rocking movement of the ship, I had either fallen asleep or was on the point of doing so, when a heavy man sat down with rather a clash close by. The barrel shook as he leaned his shoulders against it, and I was just about to jump up when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice, and before I had heard a dozen words, I would not have shown myself for all the world, but lay there, trembling and listening, in the extreme of fear and curiosity, for from these dozen words I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone. End of chapter 10